This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem-based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Callie E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Contracts Lectures. This is lecture number eight, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about the parole evidence rule and contract modification. So moving to the common law parole evidence rule. The parole evidence rule is based upon two foundational premises. One, Parties who have reduced their agreement to a writing intended to be a final expression of their understanding should not be allowed to introduce evidence of prior oral or written terms or contemporaneous oral terms that contradict or supplement that writing. And two, the parole evidence rule gives more evidentiary weight to writings than to non-written statements. And the meaning of parole evidence. Contrary to common misperceptions, parole, when used in the context of the parole evidence rule, does not mean oral. The more accurate definition is extrinsic, meaning extrinsic to the written agreement between the parties. To be more precise, the parole evidence rule may be used to exclude written or oral agreements made prior to the written agreement, as well as oral but not written agreements that are contemporaneous with the written agreement. Generally, Contemporaneous written agreements are not excluded by the parole evidence rule, even if they contain contradictory terms. Furthermore, the rule is not really a rule of evidence. It is a rule of substantive contract law. For example, if objection to its introduction is not timely made, it can still be challenged. 
and when the trial is in federal court on diversity grounds, the state law of parole evidence will govern. The common law parole evidence rule does not exclude all types of extrinsic evidence in all situations. Parole evidence is admissible for certain purposes, including one, the formation of the contract, two, the existence of a separate enforceable agreement, three, the interpretation of the agreement, four, the validity of the contract, and five, a subsequent modification of the agreement. The common law parole evidence rule applies to written agreements intended to be the final expression of the party's agreement. The common law distinguishes between final agreements that are completely integrated and partially integrated. Some jurisdictions create a rebuttable presumption that a contract reduced to a writing is presumed to be completely integrated. A partially integrated agreement is a final expression of some of the terms, but is not complete or exclusive as to all of the terms. While a party cannot introduce evidence of a consistent additional term to a completely integrated agreement, evidence of a consistent additional term is admissible when an agreement is partially integrated. Because the parole evidence rule entails several elements, all of which must be satisfied before the rule is applied, you should always ask the following questions. 1. Is there a written agreement intended to be the final expression of the party's agreement? 2. If so, is the agreement completely integrated or partially integrated? 3. Does the extrinsic evidence offered fall within one of the categories of evidence excluded by the parole evidence rule? And 4. If so, is the extrinsic evidence being offered for an admissible purpose and thus is not excluded by the parole evidence rule? Now moving to the UCC parole evidence rule. The UCC Parole Evidence Rule is found at UCC Section 2-202. Read it carefully, keeping in mind the elements of the common law rule. Under Section 2-202, evidence of prior oral or written agreements or contemporaneous oral agreements is not admissible to contradict either 1. Agreed terms contained in confirmatory memoranda or two, a writing intended as the final expression of their agreement. This is consistent with the common law. UCC section 2-202A allows three types of evidence, usage of trade, course of dealing, and course of performance. To explain or supplement a term contained in the writing, even if the parties intended the writing to be complete and exclusive. This is broader than the common law rule, 
which would not allow evidence of usage of trade, course of dealing, or course of performance to supplement a completely integrated agreement. The common law allows parole evidence to be admitted for issues relating to the formation, interpretation, or validity of the contract. UCC Section 2-202 is silent in these situations, and thus the common law supplements under UCC Section 1-103b. For example, evidence of prior oral or written agreements or contemporaneous oral agreements may be introduced to interpret an ambiguous term or to prove mistake, fraud, misrepresentation, or failure of a condition precedent that would invalidate the contract. The UCC rules regarding the use of parole evidence regarding the modification of a contract subsequent to its formation are found at UCC Section 2-209. In addition to the common law exceptions, the UCC itself provides two important exceptions to the parole evidence rule at UCC Section 2-202A and B. Under Section 202A, the writings of the parties may always be explained or supplemented by course of dealing, usage of trade, or course of performance. This exception does not, at least on its face, allow contradictory terms. It only allows explanation of existing terms or supplementation of existing terms. It is not always easy to distinguish between terms that explain or supplement versus terms that contradict. UCC Section 2-202B provides an exception allowing evidence of prior oral or written agreements or contemporaneous oral agreements to provide consistent additional terms. However, there is an important exception to the exception. If the parties intend their agreement to be a, quote, complete and exclusive statement of the terms of the agreement, end quote, evidence of prior oral or written agreements or contemporaneous oral agreements is not admissible to introduce any additional terms, whether consistent or not. In other words, if you have a writing or writings which set forth some but not all of the terms of the agreement, you can introduce evidence establishing consistent but not contradictory additional terms. This is consistent with the partial integration rule of common law. On the other hand, if you have a comprehensive document which the parties intend to be the complete and exclusive expression of the terms of their agreement, you are not allowed to introduce evidence establishing additional terms, whether consistent or not. This rule is consistent with the complete integration rule of common law. What factors should you consider in determining if a writing is intended also as a complete and exclusive statement of the terms of the agreement? The formality of the agreement, whether lawyers drafted the agreement, its comprehensiveness, the sophistication of the parties involved, and the length of negotiations are factors mentioned 
by various courts. Another important but not conclusive fact is whether the document itself purports to be the complete and exclusive agreement of the parties. This is usually accomplished by the insertion of a merger or integration clause into the agreement. A merger clause might look like this, quote, This agreement, signed by both parties, constitutes a final written expression of all the terms of this agreement and is a complete and exclusive statement of those terms, end quote. Unfortunately, Courts sometimes regard a merger clause as relevant for a completely different purpose, that is, to determine whether a written agreement is to be treated separately from other agreements executed at the same time by the same parties. As a result, a traditionally drafted merger clause can have some unintended and undesirable consequences. For example, in Schron versus Grunstein, the court ruled that a credit agreement and a stock purchase option agreement were to be regarded as separate agreements, in part because of the existence of a merger clause in the option agreement. On the other hand, in In Re Clements Manufacturing Liquidation Company, the court held that, despite the merger clause, the asset purchase agreement was an integral part of a larger transaction, thus helping to insulate the asset purchase from avoidance as a fraudulent transfer. In Intershoe versus Bankers Trust Company, Intershoe placed a telephone order with defendant concerning a foreign currency futures transaction involving the exchange of Italian lira for United States dollars. Bankers Trust Company sent a confirmation slip to Intershoe, including, among others, the following terms, quote, We have bought from you ITL 537750000 and we have sold to you U.S. dollars 250000 end quote. The confirmation slip specified a rate of 2,151 lira per dollar, and called for delivery of the lira approximately seven months later, between October 1st and October 31st. Intershoe's treasurer signed the slip and returned it to the bank. In mid-October, the bank sent a reminder to Intershoe about the pending transaction and asked for delivery of the lira. At that point in time, Intershoe said, quote, This is a mistake. We meant to buy lira not deliver lira, end quote. And it sought to present evidence of that mistake. Although the writing was only a few sentences in length, the court found that the written confirmation was, quote, a complete and exclusive, unquote, agreement of the parties and refused to admit evidence of any additional terms, stating, quote, here the essential terms of the transaction are plainly set forth in the confirmation slip that plaintiff had sold lira to defendant. The amount of the lira it sold, the exchange rate, the amount of dollars to be paid by the defendant 
for the lira and the maturity date of the transaction. Nothing in the confirmation slip suggests that it was to be a memorandum of some preliminary or tentative understanding with respect to these terms. On the contrary, it is difficult to imagine words which could more clearly demonstrate the final expression of the party's agreement. End quote. Now moving to contract modification. Does the UCC parole evidence rule suppress oral statements or writings made after contract formation? In Trad Industries versus Brogan, a written contract specified a certain delivery date for the sale of elk. In subsequent telephone conversations, the parties agreed to a later delivery date. The court stated, quote, The telephone conversations are not barred by the parole evidence rule. These occurred after the writings and pertained to Trad's assertion that the contracts were subsequently modified, end quote. UCC Section 2-209 governs the modification, rescission, or waiver of contract terms after the contract has been formed. There is no requirement of consideration to modify a contract. This changes the common law pre-existing duty rule. Under UCC Section 2-209-2, the parties are free to provide that a written agreement can be modified only by a signed writing, usually called a no-oral modification, or NOM, clause. With regard to no-oral modification clauses, in any transactions which are not between merchants, the no-oral modification clause in a merchant's form must be separately signed by the non-merchant. This requirement of a separate signing is intended to alert non-merchants that they should not rely upon oral assurances. Does the statute of frauds apply to a modification? UCC section 2-209-3 provides that, quote, the requirements of the statute of frauds must be satisfied if the contract, as modified, is within its provisions, end quote. The majority of courts that have addressed the issue have applied the statute of frauds to oral modifications if both the original contract and the contract, as modified, are contracts involving goods with a purchase price in excess of $500. Now moving to waiver. If a post-formation oral statement does not constitute an enforceable modification, either because of a valid no-oral modification clause or because of the statute of frauds, the oral statement may nonetheless operate as a waiver under UCC Section 2-209-4. For example, a contract for the sale of a car is signed, requiring 12 payments of $1,000 on the first of each month. After three months of making payments on the first, the buyer calls the seller and asks for permission to make payments on the 15th. The seller orally agrees and accepts payments on the 15th for several months. Although this does not meet the statute of frauds requirement, 
and thus is not an effective modification. It does constitute a waiver, and the seller is stopped from alleging breach for payment it accepted that were not received on the first day of the month. Does this mean that every attempt at oral modification can be construed as a waiver? No. Waiver is based upon the equitable doctrine of estoppel and requires that the party attempting to enforce the oral agreement has relied upon the modification to her detriment. The advantage of the waiver argument is that waivers do not need to satisfy the statute of frauds. The disadvantage of the waiver argument is that under Section 2-2095, the seller can unilaterally retract the waiver by providing reasonable notice to the other party, quote, that strict performance will be required of any term waived, end quote, unless the retraction would be unjust in view of a material change of position in reliance on the waiver. In contrast, valid modifications cannot be unilaterally retracted. That brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.